All right, uh, brothers and sisters, welcome to our Bible History Project. So happy to be here. Unfortunately, I was not able to announce that today we're going to have Bible study at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So I do apologize for being four hours early. <laughs> at least it's not four hours late. So you can, if you are here to watch it for the uh, 8 o'clock Pacific Standard Time show, at least you're still able to watch the show. So it shouldn't hurt anyone any bit. And so let's go ahead and begin our Bible study. But before we proceed to reading the verses, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Almighty and merciful God, thank you so much, O Father, for blessing us with our life and giving us our strength. Every time we gather together like this to study your teachings, Father, our soul rejoices because we know we will be spiritually fed we will be guided and inspired. That we can learn to place our complete hope and trust in your mighty hands. Bless us in our Bible study, O Father. May you send your Holy Spirit to guide each and every one of us. Lord Jesus Christ, we also worship you. You are our Savior and Messiah. We will follow your lead in our life. Only guide us so that we can know what to do in every instance and situation in our life. Father, please forgive completely our sins. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, how's everyone doing tonight? Oh, it's not tonight yet, huh? But pretty good? Yeah. I guess it's afternoon. Tonight depends on what time zone you are at. But I'm excited to be here in Houston, Texas. Did I just say that? Did I just disclose? Did I just disclose my whereabouts? Anyways, praises be to God, we're here. It's nice to see the brethren here, and I'm excited to continue with our Bible history project. Today we're going to talk about Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8, the facts about the flood. Was the flood a fiction, or is it a fact? Is it something that truly and indeed happened in the history of mankind? So let's begin with Genesis chapter 6, and the verse is 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. What I read to you was God making an agreement. It's called a covenant with Noah and his family. Remember, when God looked upon the earth, what did he see? Violence, corruption, wickedness, pretty much what we can see in the world today. And so what did God decree? He decided to destroy the entire ancient world. But before doing that, he established a covenant with Noah and his family. Why? What is this covenant about? It is so that God can fulfill his promise that from the line of Noah will come forth the promised seed or the Messiah or our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and jump into Genesis chapter 7 and see what happens next. Genesis 7, 1 to 4. The Lord then said to Noah, go into, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth, for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. So to keep Noah and his family safe, because God was going to destroy the ancient world by means of a flood, what did God say to Noah? Go inside the ark. God said to build the ark. Now that it was finished, they were to go inside the ark and wait there for seven days. What also was the instruction of God to Noah? God said to take with him animals. Did you notice there were two categories of animals? What are those two categories? Clean and unclean. If they were clean, they were to take seven pairs, right? If they were unclean, only one pair. Now, why is that? Why was Noah instructed to bring more clean animals than unclean animals? We'll find out the answer later on because I'm going to go back to you 
And I'm going to ask you if you remember this particular passage of God. Take note, God is very specific when it comes to his commands. And when God gave these commands to Noah, what did Noah do? Let's read Genesis 7 verse 5. And Noah did, right? Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. We should be like Noah. Because when God gives us a command, there's a purpose for every command. And like what I said, we will find out what the purpose of God's commands are because it relates to the preservation of our life and also our faith. And so after God gave this command and Noah obeyed the command, what happens next? Genesis 7, 11 down to 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. Let's pause it for a while. The Bible gives us a very specific time frame, right? The second month and on the 17th day of the second month. I wonder what that is in Gregorian calendar. We'll figure that out later on. Not at this moment. The whole point is the Bible's telling us the events actually took place. So when we look at the context of the flood, this is not an allegory. This is not a myth. This is a historical fact because the date was actually given. On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And so when Noah and his family were safe inside the ark and they waited seven days, here comes the waters. The Bible teaches two sources of water, right? What's the first source? If you notice at the bottom, there's one source of water. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. This was not ordinary rainfall. Why? Because it came from the floodgates of the sky. So there was like a flood up above the sky. And there was a gate that was closed. And it was open all of a sudden. So it was raining. It was pouring for 40 days and 40 nights. You think that's a lot of water? Yeah? I think some time ago, it rained for four straight days here in Houston, Texas, right? How much water accumulated along the streets? Next slide, please. Remember Hurricane Harvey? Yes. Did any of you live there? No? Fortunately, you did not live there, right? That's just four hours of regular rain. When I say regular rain, compared to the rain that took place during the days of Noah, when the floodgates of heaven were open however this is just four days think about 40 days and 40 nights not only that the rainfall was not even the major source of the water what was the main source of the water that flooded the entire ancient world if we go back to genesis 7 11 down to 12 the bible says on the same day on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open so the source of water was not just from above. It was also from underneath. Underneath where? Underneath the ocean floor. Is that true? Could there be water underneath the ocean floor? Well, we have to do some digging. Next slide. If you go and look up uh, the ocean floor and look at what it looks like, you'll find what is called the mid-ocean ridge. I don't know if you study this in... Um, geology, but you can trace the ridge all the way from the North Pole, and it's basically connected. It's like a mountain range underneath the ocean, right? And it's for, it stretches for 40,000 miles. And if you look at the structure of these mountain ridges, next slide, it actually has rifts along the center, along the ridge. And there are people, scientists, who say if you dig underneath these ridges, what you'll find is lava. However, the Russian scientists, when they dug 7,000 mi uh, seven miles deep, you know what they found instead? Instead of lava, you know what they found? Next slide. What they found was water, not lava, not molten rock. What they found was a lot of water. So there's a lot of water underneath the ocean floor. Not only that, what did they also find along the mid-oceanic ridge? Next slide, please. They found hydrothermal vents. When you look at the red dots 
It follows the, the mid-oceanic ridge. You know what hydrothermal vents are? They're fissures, bro uh, breaking vents along the mid-oceanic ridge. And it basically traces volcanic activity. So this event were in the water, the floodgates or the fountains from the deep burst open, it involved volcanic activity, it involved earthquakes, it was a cataclysm. And when this cataclysm took place, it exerted a lot of pressure on the continents. Next slide, please. And so what started the flood? All the fountains of the great deep were broken up. They came from underneath the ocean floor and came through, bursting forth along the oceanic ridge, which put pressure, created tsunamis that uh, bombarded pressure against the major continents of the world. This is why when we study the Holy Scriptures, when we read about the details of the flood, this is what the psalmist said, 105, uh, 104, 5 to 8, he established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place which you established for them. And so the Bible is describing here the flood, how it covered the mountains. And as it covered the mountains, the mountains rose and the valley sank down. And so it's describing what many geologists are calling today the formation of mountains through plate tectonics. I don't know if you studied that in college as well. It seems that the Bible was describing the very same effect. And so the flood also caused the rising of mountains and the sinking of valleys causing a rise in the sea level. And so we have two major sources of water, right? From up top and from underneath. That's a lot of water. This is why when the flood finally came, how large was the flood? Genesis 7, 17 to 20, then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Let's pause there for a while. You know, when you look at that passage right there, and it says the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark. Do you know what that implies? Noah built the ark on top of the mountain, right? And so when it came, when it, the water increased, it lifted up the ark. But the water prevailed and continued to increase. It increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains, the mountains were covered. And so according to scriptures, this was a universal flood, not a local flood, because there are two camps when it comes to the flood of Noah. There are Christians who believe it was only a local flood. But there are those who believe it was a global flood. Why do we believe it was a global flood? Because it covered, it prevails over all the mountains of the earth. You cannot have a flood that's local if it covers the highest of the mountains. So if this was a universal flood that the Bible was speaking about. For how long did this... Um, flood prevail and what was the effect what did it bring upon life let's read genesis 7 21 to 23 and all flesh died that moved on the earth birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life all that was on the dry land what happened they all died so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. So God destroyed all living things by means of the flood. So this flood was destructive. Kind of hard to believe that a flood can be destructive 
until you actually experience a flood for yourself, right? Here in Houston, I guess this is kind of common, but if you go to the Philippine, Philippines, it's even more common there, right? This is why the Filipinos who live here in Houston and they see all these Houstoners, people from Houston, complaining about the hurricanes. They say, ah, CCOYAN, that's nothing compared to what we have in the Philippines, right? It's like an everyday occurrence. And the, the, the floods there in the Philippines are much worse. But you know, when you look at a local flood, do you know what kind of destruction it has? Next slide. I mean, when you have a flood at the local level, it can even topple automobiles like it was like, like, like they were toys, right? Next slide. It can destroy pathways and houses, everything in its path it will destroy. What else? Next slide. It will cause a lot of severe damage in your front yard, right? And so it's going to change the landscape of geography. That's just a local flood. How about if it's a universal flood? Next slide. Just want to bring that in there. You know where that was? No, this was actually Hurricane Harvey. <laughs> yeah, Hurricane where's Hurricane Harvey? What did that hit? Hurricane Harvey? Is it here? Twenty-seven. <laughs> it was here, right? That's a, a remnant of Hurricane Harvey, and so that's the kind of damage a local front, a local flood can bring. This is why the Bible says, when this flood, which is the result of torrential rains for forty days and forty nights, and the fountains from the deep breaking up and bursting forth. You can think of the kind of destruction that produced. It killed every living thing on earth. And for how long did this, this flood prevail on the earth? Next slide, Genesis chapter 7, verse 24. The water prevailed upon the earth. How long? 150 days. And so God looked upon the earth. It was destroyed. The flood remained for 150 days, and then all of a sudden, what does God remember? Genesis chapter 8, 1 to 3. But God remembered who? Noah. Noah. And all the beasts and all the cattle that were with, were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. So after the water prevailed for 150 days, God remembered his covenant with Noah. And so what did he do? He closed the floodgates. He closed um, the fountains of the deep. And so the water became, it started to begin to abate it began to decrease. And eventually what happened? Genesis 8, 4 down to 5. In the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Can you help me pronounce that? How many here has gone to the Middle East? Anyone here go to the Middle East? I know we have someone from Egypt. <laughs> we have someone from Bahamas. Bahamas. <laughs> Or Jerusalem, nobody came from Turkey. How do you pronounce that? Ararat or Ararat, Ararat, is it? Ararat, let's just make it Ararat, the mountains of Ararat. Don't you want to go there? I'll be a nice field trip, huh? We'll go to the mountains of Ararat and we'll look for Noah's Ark. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So here's Noah's Ark. The waters began to decrease. Eventually, here's a mountain that shows up, right? It's a mountain somewhere in Ararat. Take note, it doesn't say Mount Ararat, right? It's, it's a mountain somewhere in the mountain range of Ararat, but it doesn't specify which one. That's the problem, right? It's somewhere in the mountain range of Ararat, and we don't even know where Ararat is. Or what Ararat actually signifies, right? This is why people have a hard time looking for Noah's Ark. Did you know there are a lot of people today who are trying to look for Noah's Ark? This is why you watch these television specials, NBC or CBS produced one in 1993. They said they found Noah's Ark, but there's a bunch of hoaxes because we can't really pinpoint exactly which mountain. But there's something we want to know. 
two things we need to know. We got to go somewhere in Ararat. We got to discover where Ararat is first. And then we have to look at the mountain that's the highest, right? Why? Because once it rested on this mountain, which is on, in the mountain range of Ararat, after the 10th month, and so this, when it was on Ararat, it was the seventh month, and on the 10th month, he can see the tops of the other mountains. So, you know, it landed on a high mountain. And then after a couple of months, almost three months, all of the other mountains' tops began to appear, right? So it must be in a mountain range where you can see a mountain kind of standing up, standing out and standing up strong, right? So if we're going to go to Turkey or the Middle East and look for mountains, next slide, we will look at this area right here. It could be anywhere there. That's a lot of ground to cover, right? But at least we have clues. We can look at mountain ranges where you have mountains kind of standing up. Like what? Next slide. You got several, several uh, mountains we can look at. Maybe for 2020, we can go to the center one, right? What do you think? Do you think it's somewhere there? Yeah, we don't know yet. Nobody's really found it yet, but it's somewhere there. It's somewhere in that area. It's somewhere in those mountain ranges. And we're not going to really involve ourselves too much in looking for Noah's Ark because it's irrelevant, right? Because what matters is what it points to. What Noah's Ark points to its spiritual significance and it, that's what matters concerning our faith. Genesis 8, 6 down to 7, what happened after 40 days? So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. According to scriptures, when Noah landed on the ark, or when, when Noah's ark landed on Ararat, he opened up the window and he let a raven fly. Why a raven? Why did he choose a raven? Anyone here know? Anyone? <laughs> you know what? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know why he chose a raven. But the Bible says he let the raven fly, and it says here, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. And I was thinking, wait a minute. That's a long time. That's like 21 days of flying. There must be something wrong. And so I looked up the Hebrew of Genesis, Genesis 8, 6 to 7. This is what I found out. Kept going to and fro. It comes from the Hebrew wasob, which means to turn back to return. And so what it actually means is this raven left and came back. And so every time Noah would send the raven to look if there's dry land, it would always come back until there was finally dry land, right? That's why sometimes it can be very helpful to get software so that you can look at the Hebrew words of the biblical terms. It's very, very uh, revealing. Anyway, so after the ravens uh, did not succeed, what did Noah do next? Genesis 8, 8 down to 12, and he sent out a dove. I want to pause here for a while. I'm going to read this passage, okay? And then I want you to think of a spiritual application for this passage. I want you to read the passage. I'll, you can read together with me, not out loud. But I'll read the passage, and I want you to think of a spiritual application that you can think of after I read this passage. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth, then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Okay, so 
what is the spiritual application that you can think of when you read that passage? Anyone here? Any, uh, any takers? Maybe we can ask our IT. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't ask for IT. Anyone here? Brother Camilo? What do you think? Yeah? Because oh. I know Brother Camilo likes chickens, and these are doves, right? You know, what does the flood represent? It's like the problems in life, right? This is like your crisis. And so the crisis is there, and Noah maybe is praying, I hope the crisis is gone. And so he sends out the first dove. But it comes back with an, with an empty beak, right? But does he give up? No. no. Seven days later, he tries. Again, you see, that's what faith is all about. You keep trying. You keep believing. You keep hoping. And so when he sends the dove, it comes back. This time it has what? Yeah, an olive leaf. Is that progress? Yes. It's the progress of faith. Sometimes when we pray to God, it's not instantaneous. Right? It comes one piece at a time. And so the third time, he sets out the dove. This time it doesn't come back. The crisis is gone. The water is gone. The problem is gone. But it took a while. You had to progress through it, right? That's a kind of a nice spiritual application. Genesis chapter 8, 8 down to 12. And so, after that, what happens next? Genesis 8, 13 to 14. Now it came about in, six, in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And so we can look at the chronology of the flood. Next slide. So, yeah, Noah and the family went to the ark, waited for seven days. So there were seven days inside the ark. And then 150 days, the water continued. And this comes from 40 days of rain, as, long as, and as well as the fountains of the deep. And it continued for 110 days. And then afterwards, next slide, the water receded, 150 days. 74 days later, tops of the, the mountains become visible. 40 days later, the raven was sent out. And then the dove, the dove, and then the waters receded 22 days later. Then Noah saw dry land. When you add it all together, 306, 377 days. Next slide. So he was in the ark 377 days, five months floating, seven and a half months on the mountain. These are the facts about the flood. And so after the land was dry, what did God tell Noah to do? Genesis 8, 15 and 19. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. So when the land was dry, what was the instruction to Noah? Go out of the ark. What were the animals supposed to do? To breed abundantly on the earth, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. This was also the instruction of God to Noah and his family. They were to repopulate planet earth. This was God's desire. However, remember I asked you I was going to go back and remind you about the two kinds of animals that God told Noah to bring with him inside the ark. There were the clean animals and there were the unclean animals. I mean, how did they find out? How did they figure out which animals were clean, which animals were not? How did they find out? God told them. <laughs> God told them, right? So what we see here, because this was not made into a law until after, until during the days of Moses, right? Moses codified it, but it was already taught to the people of God even before Moses. This is why Abraham knew about it, 
Noah knew about clean animals and unclean animals. Why? Why did God tell him to bring seven pairs inside the ark? We'll find out now. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of, of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now we know why. It was to be used as a burnt offering to be used in serving and worshiping the Lord God. And so how did God regard the offering of Noah and his family? Genesis 8, 21 to 22. Then the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. God was so pleased with the offering. God made a promise. What is the promise of God? I will never again destroy all living things in the same way he destroyed it with, with a flood. However, we know when we look back or when we look in advance in Second Peter, we'll talk about that. There's something that's going to happen to the whole earth, which is akin to what happened to the ancient world we'll make the connection later on but we need to understand when God is pleased God likes to make promises notice that if you please God you don't have to convince God Lord bless me he will be the one to want to bless you right this is why we need to offer ourselves as what a living sacrifice to God pleasing to our, our almighty God if our life pleases God if our worship pleases God, then God will fulfill His promise to prosper us and bless us in every way. That's the story about the flood, the grace that God brings amidst the judgment that He has decreed against mankind. However, there are people today who think the flood was just a myth, right? They don't really believe it actually happened. So let's go ahead and take a look at the reasons why I, I'm not going to impose my belief on you, at least I believe the flood actually happened, okay? I'm going to tell you my top reasons why I believe it happened. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah? Again, this is not meant to be dogmatic. I believe um, there's a reason why God did all this, and I believe God also gave evidence for us to examine so that we can determine whether or not it's rational to believe that actually there was a flood. Let's go ahead and take a look at the first one. Next slide. Historical evidence, yeah. If you want to know an event actually took place, you got to look at historical evidence, right? For example, how many here uh, saw or are aware of the Declaration of Independence? Have you seen that? Yeah? Do, do, do they actually have the original Declaration of Independence? Maybe. Have you seen it? No? Have you seen copies of it? Yeah. yeah? Have you heard stories about it? Yeah. yeah. For us, at least for me, I've never seen it. I've never even seen a copy of it. I don't think I did. Maybe I did. I just, I just don't remember. But the reason why I believe it is because a lot of people told me about it. Right? And there's good reason for it. But when we look at the flood, what is historical evidence that point to an actual event that represents the flood story because there are over 250 different flood legends and stories from 250 different ancient cultures. Like what? Next slide. When you look at it, you, know, you had like uh, different traditions from Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Egypt, Italy, Lithuania, Russia, China, India, Canada, Cherokee, the United States, Mexico, Leeward Islands, Fiji Islands, Hawaii, you can go on and on and on. And they all have stories about a flood, about a man in transgression, about divine destruction, about a favored family, about an ark that's provided, about destruction by water, about humans and animals being saved, about universal destruction, about landing on a mountain, about birds being sent out, about survivors on a, uh, who worship about divine favor on the same. You have all these different stories. Take note. Back then, did they have internet? Could they share written information? No. How did they come up with these stories when they were unable to communicate with one another? 
It's because it actually happened. And their ancestors' ancestors passed the story verbally. And because it was, it was passed along verbally, it was embellished a little bit. But the main essence of the story remains intact. This is why you want proof that the flood actually took place. Look at these flood stories. The universality of these stories point to the fact it actually took place. Because if it did not, how could you explain this? You can only explain this if it actually happened, right? Not only is there historical evidence, next slide, there's also geological evidence. How many here love to study geology? Nobody here loves geology? Oh, the engineer. <laughs> That's right, graduate. Yeah, what is one geological evidence? Next slide, what is uh, one geological evidence for the occurrence of a universal flood? Geological formations throughout the world, like oh. Grand Canyon. Have you been in the Grand Canyon before? Yes. Yeah. Was it beautiful? Scary. Was it awe-inspiring? It's a nice place, right? The Grand Canyon. Uh, when you go to the Grand Canyon, I guess we have to go there one of these days. Next slide. But have you ever considered asking yourself or asking someone, I mean, how was the Grand Canyon formed? If you remember your high school days, what did they tell you? How was the Grand Canyon formed? Next slide. This is their standard explanation. The science teacher will probably tell you that millions of years of erosion, right? Brought upon by the effects of the Colorado River is what carved the Grand Canyon. This is what they tell you in the public schools. Erosion from the Colorado River. So there's the Colorado River. It goes through the, the, uh, the valley. And it causes erosion, so it digs valleys until millions and millions of years. You get all this dirt removed from that valley, and it becomes the Grand Canyon. Millions of years of erosion. There's two problems with that, though. Yeah? What are those two problems? Next slide. Problem with that is the Colorado River enters the canyon at 2,800 feet elevation. We know rivers don't flow uphill. They flow downhill. And so when you look at the trajectory of the Colorado River, it goes that way. When you look at the highest peak of the Grand Canyon, it plateaus at 8,000 feet. So if the Colorado River really carved out the Grand Canyon, then for millions of years, the Colorado River had to go uphill. I think that goes against the law of gravity, right? There's another problem with that. If the Colorado River, next slide, did produce the Grand Canyon, then what can we expect to find? Well, we need to find a delta. A delta, by the way, is where the river ends, right? So all of the debris, because of the erosion, that's where it's gathered. So we need to look for a delta where the Colorado River enters the Gulf of California. It's not there. You cannot find it anywhere. So where did all the 800 cubic miles of dirt go? It's missing. <laughs> This is why those are two big problems when it comes to explaining how the Grand Canyon was actually formed. So what is the explanation behind that? Well, we get an idea by looking at this canyon here. Next slide. Have you, have you been to this canyon? No? Does it look like the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, it's that. <laughs> it does look like the Grand Canyon. When I first look at, looked at this picture, I thought it was the Grand Canyon. But you know what? That's not the Grand Canyon. You know what that's called? Next slide. <coughs> Little Grand Canyon. <laughs> Grand Canyon Junior. That's what it's called. Right? Uh, next slide. You know what the uh, specs of Little Grand Canyon are? 17 miles. 140 feet deep. It's about 140th the size of Grand Canyon. That's why we call it Grand Canyon Junior. Okay? All right. Do you know how many years, according to scientists, Erosion was able to produce that Grand Canyon right there, Grand Canyon Junior. Do you know what actually produced this? Next slide. It was actually produced March 19, uh, 1982. Yeah. It was produced 1982. Mount St. Helens erupted, result, resulting in a flood of mud, mud flow. So it was formed in just hours, in just hours. 140th the size of Grand Canyon, right? Can you imagine 
what 40 days and 40 nights of cataclysm will do? It will produce Grand Canyon Senior, right? This is why geological formations like the Grand Canyon is proof that there was a universal flood. What else is the reason why I believe it was a flood? Next slide, please. We have fossil evidence. How many here love fossils? Huh? Nobody here like? If you like fossils, have you ever considered, next slide, how fossils are actually formed? Because people think you need millions of years to form a fossil. Oh, no. To be able to form a fossil, these are the three things you need. Next slide. Number one, you need a quick burial. The burial has to be quick. Number two, you need to have water. And number three, you need to have dirt. You need to have sediments. Right? You, have, you need to have minerals in the form of sediments. Otherwise, you're not going to get fossilization. And so if there was a flood, it, what can we expect to see throughout the world? Next slide. If there was a flood, we can expect to see millions of fossil deposits throughout the world. Why? Because without the conditions given by the flood, it's going to be impossible and difficult to produce a fossil. Did you know that, uh, next slide, we have what is called a, uh, a fossil graveyard? And these are deposits like the one in South Africa, the Karoo deposit. These deposits are so immense that even after decades of fossil collecting bones are still sticking out of the ground. The Karoo Formation is a water-deposited sediment bed up to 20,000 20, feet thick. It has 800 billion fossils in that area. That's why they call, it a, they call it a fossil graveyard. What do you find in fossil graveyards? Next slide. Hundreds of thousands of marine creatures were buried, mixed with amphibians, spiders, scorpions, millipedes, insects, and reptiles in a fossil graveyard there in France. More than 100,000 fossil specimens representing more than 400 species have been recovered from a shale layer associated with coal beds in the Mason Creek area near Chicago. The spectacular fossil graveyard includes ferns, insects, scorpions, tetrapods, buried with jellyfish, mollusks, crustaceans, and fish, often with soft parts, exquisitely preserved. I mean, how does that happen? You notice in many of these examples how marine and land-dwelling creatures are found buried together. How could this have happened unless the ocean waters rose and swept over the continents in a global catastrophic flood? Right? That's why the reason why we have all these fossil beds and fossil graveyards is because there had to be rapid burial with force and cataclysm. Otherwise, we would not have these fossil graveyards. This is why this is evidence that there was a universal cataclysm, a flood, that took place long ago. And if the flood came suddenly, what else can we expect to happen? Next slide. There are millions of fish in the fossil record that are perfectly preserved. This can't be explained by normal events. Fish normally float, right, when they die. By the time they sink to the bottom, they have already been attacked by scavengers, and various parts of their body have begun decaying. However, Next slide. The only way for us to be able to explain millions of fish perfectly preserved is through a catastrophic event. Sediment had to be dumped on them very, very quickly. And so what does that sound like when sediments are dumped on you very, very quickly? Can you imagine the kind of tsunamis, the kind of waves, uh, what the, sh the ocean was like when the flood came? And when the flood gates of the deep open and bursted forth, it would produce all these sediments that would come crashing down all these animals, both on the land and also in the sea. This is why it happened so fast. You have fossils like this. Next slide. You have fossils with fish eating fish. So this fish was eating something and it hasn't even digested its meal. And it was fossilized. Can you imagine that? Next slide. There's even one giving birth. <laughs> it was fossilized while giving birth. You can only explain that if it was a cataclysm, if it was a universal flood. Not only that, if you go to on tops of mountains, and every geologist knows this, marine fossils are found on almost every mountain range in the world. 
The Alps, the Andes, even Mount Everest all provide clear evidence that the oceans covered the continents. And so these are evidences that the flood actually took place. But you know, for me, you know what the best evidence is that the flood actually took place? You want to know? Next slide. You know, you, do you want to know for me what the best evidence is? What do you think? What do you think for me is the best evidence for why I believe the flood took place? What is it? Next slide. Because it's in the Bible. All right. <laughs> because it's in the Bible. That's why I believe it. Even if we did not have all of these evidences provided by geology, paleontology, and his, his, his historical records, you know, God has been generous enough to give us all that, but even if that was not there, because it's in the Bible, we believe it. Because our faith is based upon what is recorded in the Holy Bible. But you know, there are still many people who don't believe in the flood. And when we think about the reasons why, I think Apostle Peter was spot on when he said this. 2 Peter 3, 3 down to 7. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Apostle Peter is not surprised that in the last days there will be scoffers. What is the meaning of a scoffer? They will mock you. Especially when you present your belief about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they not believe in the truth? Why do they reject the advent or the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it because they lack the evidence? No. You know, when you talk to an atheist and we talk to people who don't believe in God, don't believe in the Bible, don't believe in Christ, they can give you a lot of reasons why they don't believe. But you know what the real reason is? It's right there. What's the real reason? Because they want to follow their own desires. desires. You see, if they're going to believe all this stuff, you know what that means? They're, they're going to have to make changes in how they live. And people, rather than have to be uncomfortable with having to change their lifestyle, they will prefer to choose not to believe. It's easier for them to choose not to believe than to believe and have to change their lifestyle. So they don't believe it. But what does the Apostle Peter warn us? He said what happened before will happen again. Before the ancient world was destroyed entirely by water. But this time it's going to be slightly different. It's, going to not, it's not going to be by water anymore. It's going to be by what? By fire. The world will be destroyed by fire. And when we had our, our Bible study last time, when the Lord Jesus Christ said the days of Noah will be exactly like the days of the Son of Man, there were people who were kind of afraid. But John, there was only eight people that were saved, <laughs> right? And so they were kind of afraid. What am I going to do? Am I going to be saved? You know what? Our Almighty God is so compassionate. Even in the flood story, God gave us three hints of the promise of the Messiah. Did you see it? I want to just go through that really fast before we end because I think it's very, very significant. Uh, in the next slide, what is, one of the, what is one of the hints of Jesus in the flood story? Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, God, uh, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark and they'll be safe from the flood, right? The flood represents the judgment of God. John chapter 10, 7, 9, 26, uh, Christ says, then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I... I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They will follow me and I give them eternal life. And so we can see that the Lord Jesus Christ was being pointed to by the ark. In the same way you needed to enter the ark to be saved during the days of Noah, during the days of the Son of Man, we have to enter who? Christ. 
We need to be in the body of Christ. We need to be in union with Christ. If we are in union with Christ, what is our assurance? Next slide, Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation now for those who live in union with Christ. Jesus. This is why, if I were to ask you, where is the safest place on the day of judgment? The safest place. In a bunker? In the moon somewhere? Where is the safest place? In Christ. In union with Christ. Outside of Christ, we're not safe. It doesn't matter where you live. Because it doesn't matter where you're at. What matters is who you're with. If we are in union with Christ Jesus, we're safe. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, we have no condemnation. Why is that? Why don't we have condemnation in Christ Jesus? Let's go back to Genesis in the flood. Remember this one? Genesis 6.14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Do you remember what pitch represents? What does pitch represent? We know pitch is like tar, right? It's like something that kind of glues things together. So to, to seal the ark, the wood, you cover it with pitch inside and out. However... If you look deeper at what pitch is, if you look at the Hebrew word of pitch, it actually is the word kofer. Okay, kofer, pitch. What does that mean? Next slide. It means to atone. Wow. It means the price of a life, a ransom. And so the ark was protected literally by pitch, covered, covering it inside and out. But it also represents what? Atonement. What does that point to? If you, remember, if you still remember. What does atonement refer to? Next slide. The pitch actually covers, that covers the ark inside and out. Points to the atonement for sins. Through the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.14. Someone had to die as a ransom for our life. Who's that? Christ. And so by the blood of Christ. We have been cleansed. So that we can serve the living God. And so the pitch used to cover the ark actually points to who? Our Lord Jesus Christ's death. So that we can be atoned for, for our sins. That's already two hints, right? Of the promise of the Messiah in the flood story. But there's another one. Genesis 8 verse 4. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventh day of the month, on the mountains of... Ararat. <laughs> right? Ararat. You know, it's like thinking, Ararat. Is that an actual Hebrew word? What do you think? It actually is. And I didn't know about this until just a couple hours ago. I just stumbled, I just, for some reason, I just decided to Google Hebrew Ararat, and this came up. Just literally just a couple hours ago. This came up. Next slide. Ararat means the curse reversed. <laughs> Precipitation of a curse. So when the Ark of Noah rested upon the uh, uh, mountains of Ararat, the curse was reversed. Wait a minute. What was the curse? When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, what was the curse? You have been appointed to die. And then here, the curse is reversed. What does that mean? Someone will live again. And so we have to look deeper. Let's go back to that. Genesis chapter 8, the verses 4. The ark rested on the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Ararat means the curse reversed. So let's take a look at that date. Seventh month. Of, kind of fast, huh? <laughs> quick, quick trigger here. Let's go. Okay, let's go ahead. The 17th day of the seventh month. The first month of the Jewish calendar is actually October. So the seventh is the month of April. The 17th day of April is three days after the Passover. And so the Ark landed on Ararat three days after the 
Passover. Now here's my question, next slide. Do you know what happened on the third day after Passover? Oh, I love that. Do you know what happened on the third day after Passover? Next slide. That is when the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the grave. The curse was what? That's why the Bible calls Jesus the first fruits of those who will be risen. We will be the second fruits. Isn't that nice? Right? This is why, next slide, the ark landing to rest on the mounds of Ararat coincides with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the promise of Christ in the flood story, next slide, we have three. Number one, those who enter in Christ as the door will be safe. Number two, the pitch covering the ark inside and out points to the atonement that Christ's death brings. And number three, the ark landing on the 17th day of the seventh month points to the promised rest of the resurrection of Christ to reverse, to undo the curse so that we can live even after we die. This is why we should not be afraid. Instead of being afraid, what should we do? Let's go to the book of Genesis. We're almost done. 7, 1, 5, and 16. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I want to pause there for a while. And I want you to put yourselves in the ark. Pretend you're Noah or Noah's wife. <laughs> okay, pretend you're Noah or Noah's wife. And you're inside the ark. You know what's going to happen, right? The whole world will be destroyed. And we know that the waters will be tumultuous. You know, it's going to be shaking you. And so you're inside the ark. Would you feel a little bit afraid? Yes. Kind of, right? I mean, just hearing the thunder makes you afraid. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, as a human being, it's kind of natural to be afraid sometimes. I mean, if the whole world will be engulfed by water and everything's going to be pulverized because of the turbulence, you're going to be a little bit afraid. I mean, Noah did as best as he can to build the ark. That's why it says that Noah did all that the Lord commanded. But Noah's only a human being. As human beings, we make mistakes. We're faulty. And so he has every right to be a little bit afraid. But you know what? This is one of my favorite passages in the Genesis story. Did you notice what God said there in the last part? Then the Lord shut him in. In other words, what Noah cannot do for himself, God says, I'll do it for you. God shut him in. God protected Noah and everyone inside the ark. This is why, brethren, if we want to feel the protection of God, we should trust in Him. What is the promise of God? If we will trust in Him. Let's read the, the book of Psalms, the final passage of our studies today. The book of Psalms 91, 1-4. Whoever goes to the Lord for safety, whoever remains under the protection of the Almighty can say to Him, You are my defender and protector. You are my God, in you I trust. He will keep you safe from all hidden dangers and from all deadly diseases. He will cover you with his wings. You will be safe in his care. His faithfulness will protect and defend you. The Bible says, if ever we feel afraid, if there are problems in our life, that sometimes they kind of represent like a flood, turbulent waters, a crisis in our life, what God wants us to do is to make him our protector and our defender. How? The Bible says by trusting in him. Trust in God. Make him your protector and defender. And what will he do? The Bible says he will keep you safe from all dangers. Both visible and, and most of all hidden dangers. As human beings we can only protect ourselves from hidden dangers. And sometimes even if we know the dangers are there. We are powerless against it. But God has enough power to protect us, even from hidden dangers. He will cover us with his wings, and so we will be safe in his care, because his faithfulness will protect and defend us. And so, brethren, rather than be afraid, let us place our trust 
in our Almighty God and in His plan for salvation, which includes His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? That is our lesson. Let us all stand and we shall pray together. Almighty and loving Father, thank you so much for giving us inspiration and hope despite the present condition of the world today. Despite our personal sins and afflictions, Lord, you care for us deeply. You love us very much. You give testimony for us one after the other. The more we look into your book, the more we see the depth of your love, the more we can realize, truly we can rely on you for everything in our life. We need your protection and care. Thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for being there for your people. Father, we need you right now. Send your Holy Spirit to inspire each and every one of us. Please embrace us with your loving embrace. Continue to guide us with protection and guidance. And may you please provide for all of our needs. Lord Jesus, may you please stand by our side. We can do nothing without you. You are our Messiah. We place our hope and trust in you. May you work your miracles in our life and strengthen always our faith. Father, please forgive completely our sins. Help us to long for your salvation and your promised deliverance. We ask and beg everything, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.